Hello and welcome to Auto Amazing Guys. This is your host, Alien Snape, coming to you live. So this is episode three of The Hypnotist, and as you guys may have remembered, last episode I said that I wasn't sticking to a certain amount of chapters. I will do whatever amount of chapters I feel like doing. So in this case today, I feel like stopping after chapter 11. So I'm going to read all of chapter 7 through all of chapter 11. Because I feel like it. And I'm hoping it makes the video longer than my other two videos were. Because and I know I seem like a really fast growing podcaster. But I myself come really picky when it comes to podcasts that I like to listen to. So like if a podcast isn't long enough for me, I don't listen to them. Because I like to escape. And one way of escape for me is listening to my podcast's people that I like to follow. And they've all got exceptionally long videos, uh, recordings, actually. And it helps me spend a lot of time away from my problems while listening to somebody else talk about something else, anything else, for more than 30 minutes, you know. So I'm just, I'm hoping this exceeds the 30-minute line. If it doesn't, well, we'll shoot for next video. So let's get on with our daily quote for this morning. Now, I I love doing these quotes. I really do. For some reason. So, our first quote app for the day is my criminal app. Are you kidding me? I love that one. Now, I don't exactly understand the point of this criminal one, whether these are uh, things from movies about criminals or actual quotes from actual criminals i'm not exactly sure but they've got a lot of good quotes i've been surfing through it as of last night because i got really really bored so i was surfing through my apps and they've got some good ones on there i didn't read them all so (laughs) don't worry about that one there's quite a few of them still on there that i don't know about so We are going to be picking one of the... We're just going to be having a random quote chosen by the app. I'm not going to choose the random quote. The app's going to choose the random quote. And today's random quote will be... This this is from season three of whatever. And it is, Love all, trust a few, do wrong to none. And this was said by William Shakespeare... Um, I think this is the only app that gives me a, an origin of said quotes, but I like it. I do. That was actually quite interesting. Hmm. Anyway, let us get on with the reading, shall we? Again, leave me guys voice messages about what you like, what you don't like, and about the, the book, you know, and again, I'm sorry if I can't say half of what's in here right. I, again, I don't speak Swedish, and I didn't know the book was in Swedish, somewhat, somewhat, but that is okay. I'm liking the book so far. Uh, it's got some gory scenes in it, though. The Hypnotist, Chapter 7, Monday, December 7th, Evening. Junalina's colleagues at the National Criminal Investigation Department will tell you they admire him, and they do, 
but they also envy him. And they will tell you they like him, and they do, but they also find him aloof. As a homicide investigator, his track record is unparalleled in Sweden. Success is due in part of the fact that he completely lacks the capacity to quit. He cannot surrender. It is this trait that is the primary cause of his colleague's envy. But what most don't know is that his unique stubbornness is a result of unbearable personal guilt. Guilt that drives him and renders him incompa incompatible of leaving a case unsolved. He never speaks about what transpired, and he never forgets what happened. Juno wasn't driving particularly fast that day, but it had been raining, and the rays of the emerging sun bounced off the puddles as they were emanating from the underground source. He was on his way, thought he could escape. Ever since that day, he's been plagued not only by memories, but also by an unusual form of migraine. The only thing that's proven helpful is being a pre preventive medicine used for epilepsy. Toprimate. Juna's supposed to take the medicine regularly, but it makes him drowsy, and when he's on the job and needs to think clearly, he refuses to take it. He'd rather submit to pain. In truth, he probably considers his considers his punishment just, both inability to relinquish an unresolved case and the migraine. An ambulance lights blinked, rocketed past him in the opposite direction as he approached the house, leaving a ghost-like silence. The emergency vehicle disappeared through the sleeping suburb. Waiting for Juna, Lamore Bloom stood smoking under a street lamp. In its glow, she looked beautiful in a rugged way. These days, her face was creased with fatigue, and her makeup was invariably sloppy. But Juno had always found her to be a wonderful-looking, with her high cheekbones, straight nose, and slanted eyes. Junalina, she says, almost cooing his name. Will the boy make it? Hard to say. It's absolutely terrible. I've never seen anything like it and I never want to again. She let her eyes linger a while in the glow of her cigarette. Have you written up your report? he asked. She shook her head and ex exhaled a stream of smoke. I'll do it, he says. Then I'll go home and go to bed. That sounds nice, he said with a smile. Join me, she joked. Juno shook his head. I want to go in and look around. Then I'll have to determine whether the boy can be interrogated. Lelamore tossed the cigarette to the ground. What exactly are you doing here? she asked. You can request backup from National Murder Squad, but I don't think they will have time, and I don't think they'll find answers to what happened here anyway. But you will? We'll see, Juna said. He crossed the small garden. A pink bicycle with training wheels was propped up against a sandbox. Juna headed up the front steps, turning on his flashlight, opened the door, and walked into the hallway. 
The dark rooms were filled with silent fear. Just a few steps in, and the adrenaline was pumping through him so hard it felt like his chest would explode. Purposefully, Juno registered it all, absorbing every horrific detail until he couldn't take any more. He stopped in his tracks, closed his eyes, felt back to guilt deep inside him, and continued the search of the house. In the bleak light of the hallway, Juno saw how bloody bodies had been dragged along the floor. Blood spattered the exposed brick chimney, the television, the kitchen cabinets, the oven. Juna took in the chaos, the tipped-over furniture, the scattered silverware, and the desperate footprints and handprints. When he stopped in front of the small girl's amputated body, tears began to flow down his face. Still, he forced himself to try to imagine precisely what must have happened, the violence and the screams. The driving force behind these murders couldn't have been connected to a gambling debt, Juno thought. The father had already been killed, first the father, then the family. Juno was convinced of it. He breathed hard between gritted teeth. Somebody had wanted to annihilate the whole family, and he likely believed he had succeeded. Chapter 8 Monday, December 7th, Night Junalina stepped out into the cold wind over the shivering black and yellow crime tape and into his car. The boy is alive, he thought. I have to meet the surviving witness. From his car, Juno tracked Joseph Ick to a neurosurgical unit at Karolinska University Hospital in, Sulo, in Sona. The forensic technicians from Linkoping had supervised the securing of biological evidence taken from the boy's person. His condition had since deteriorated. It was after one in the morning when Juna headed back to Stockholm, arriving at the intense care section of Karolinska Hospital, just past two. After a fifteen-minute wait, the doctor in charge, Daniela Richards, appeared. You must be Detective Lena. Sorry to keep you waiting. I'm Daniela Richards. How is the boy, doctor? He's in circulatory shock, she said. Meaning? He's lost a lot of blood. His heart is attempting to compensate for this and has started to race. Have you managed to stop the bleeding? I think so. I hope so. And we're giving him blood all the time, but the lack of oxygen could taint the blood and damage the heart lungs, liver, and kidneys. Is he conscious? No. It's urgent that I get a chance to interview him. Detective, my patient is hanging on by his fingernails. If he survives his injuries at all, it won't be possible to interview him for several weeks. He's the sole eyewitness to a multiple murder, said Juna. Is there anything you can do? The only person who might possibly be able to hasten the boy's recovery is Eric Maria Bark. The hypnotist? asked Juna. She gave a big smile, blushing slightly. Don't call him that if you want his help. He's our leading expert in treatment and shock and trauma. Do you have any objections if I ask him to come in? On the contrary. I've been considering it myself, she said. 
Juno searched his pockets for his phone, realizing he had left it in the car, and asked if he could borrow Daniela's. After outlining the situation to Eric Maria Bark, he called Susan Grant at Social Services and explained that he was hoping to be able to talk to Joseph Eck soon. Susan Granite knew all about the family. The Erks were on their register. She had, because of the father's gambling addiction, and because they had dealings with the daughter three years ago. With the daughter, asked Juna. The older daughter, explained Susan. So there is a third child, Juna asked impatiently. Yes, her name is Evelyn. Juna ended the conversation and immediately called his colleagues in the recon reconnaissance division to ask him to track down Evelyn Eck. He emphasized repetitively that it was urgent, that she risked being killed, but then he added it was also possible that she was dangerous and that she could actually have been involved in the triple homicide in Tumba. Chapter 9 Tuesday, December 8th, Morning Detective Junalina orders a large sandwich to go with Parmesan brisola and sun-dried tomatoes from the little breakfast bar called I Cafe on Bergenstan. The cafe had just opened, and the girl who takes his order has not yet had time to unpack the warm bread from the large brown bags in which had been delivered from the bakery. Having inspected the crime scene in Tumba late that night before, and in the middle of the night, visited the hospital in Solna and spoke to the two doctors, Daniela Richards and Eric Maria Bark. He had called reconnaissance once more. Have you found Evelyn? He said, no. You realize we have to find her before the murderer does. We're trying, but try harder, Junus had growled. Maybe we can save a life. Now, after three hours of sleep, Juna gazes out the steamed-up window, waiting for his breakfast. Sleet had fallen on the town hall. The food arrives. Juna grabs a pen on the glass counter, signs the credit slip, and hurries out. The sleet intensifies as he makes his way along Bergantstan, the warm sandwich in one hand and his indoor hockey stick and gym bag in the other. We're playing recon Tuesday night, Juna had told his colleague, Benny Rubin. We have no chance. They're going to kill us. The national CID indoor hockey team loses whenever they play the local police. The traffic police, the marine time police, the national special intervention squad, the SWAT team, or recon. But it gives them a good excuse to drown their sorrows together in the pub, as they like to say, afterward. Juna had no idea as he walks alongside police headquarters and past the big entrance doors, that he will neither play hockey nor go to the pub this Tuesday. Someone has scrawled a swastika on the entrance sign to the courtroom. He strides on towards the Conberg holding cells and watches the tall gate close silently behind a car. Snowflakes are melting on a big window of the guardroom. Juno walks past the police swimming pool and cuts across the yard towards the gabbled end of the vast complex. The facade resembles dark copper, burnished un but underwater, flags droop wetly from their poles, hurrying between two metal plists and beneath the high frosted glass roof. Juno stamps 
the snow off his shoes and swings open the door to the National Police Board. The central administrative authority in Sweden, the National Police Board, is made up of the National Criminal Investigation Department of Security Services, the Police Training Academy, and the National Forensics Laboratory. The National CID in Sweden's only central opera operational police body, with the responsibility for dealing with serious crime work, crime on a national and international level. For nine years, Juna Lina has worked here as a detective. Juna walks along the corridor, taking off his cap and shaking it at his side, glancing in passing as he notices the bulletin board about yoga classes. Someone who's selling, who's trying to sell a camper, information from the trade union, and scheduling changes for the shooting club. The floor, which was mopped before the snowstorm began, is already soiled with boot prints and dried muddy slush. The door of Benny Rubin's office is ajar. A sixty-year-old man with a gray mustache and a wrinkled, sun damaged, and wrinkled, some damaged skin. He is involved in the work around communication headquarters and the changeover of Raquel, the new radio system. He sits at his computer with a cigarette behind his ear, typing with agonizing slowness. I've got eyes in the back of my head, he says all of a sudden. Maybe that explains why you're such a lousy typist, jokes Juno. Benny's latest find is an advertising poster for the airline SAS, a fairly exotic young woman in a minute bikini suggestively sipping some kind of fruit garnished cocktail from a straw. Benny was so incensed by the ban on calendars featuring pinup girls that most people thought he was going to reassign, but instead he has devoted himself to a silent and stubborn protest for many years. Technically, nothing dis forbids the display of advertisements for airlines, pictures of ice princesses with their legs spread wide apart, lift and flexible yoga instructors or ads for underwater underwear from H&M. On the first day of each month, Benny changes what he has on the wall. The varieties of ways he has avoid that he avoids the band is dazzling. Juno remembers a poster of a short-distance runner, Gail Devers, in tight shorts and a daring logothropy by the artist Edgon Setchel that depicted a red-haired woman sitting with her legs apart on a pair of fluffy bloomers. Moving on, Juna stops to say hello to his assistant, Anja Larson. She sits at the computer with her mouth half open, her round face wearing an expression of such concentration that he decides not to disturb her. Instead, he hangs up his wet coat just inside the door of his office, switches on the Advent Star in the window, and glances quickly through his inbox. A message about the working environment, a suggestive, a suggestion about low-energy light bulbs, an inquiry from the prosector's office, and an invitation from the human resources to a Christmas meal at Skatson. Um, Juno leaves his office, goes into the meeting room, and sits in his usual place as he unwraps his sandwich and eats. Peter Naslud 
stops in the corner, laughs smugly, and leans on the door frame with his back to the meeting room, a muscular, balding man of about thirty-five. Peter is a detective with a position for special responsibilities, and Juna's immediate boss. Everyone knows that Juna is Im immensely more qualified than Peter, but they know, too, that he is also singularly disinterested in administrative duties and the rat race involved in climbing the ranks. For several years, Peter has been fighting with Magdalene Ronander without noticing her troubled expression and constant attempts to switch to a more businesslike tone. Magdalene had been a detective in the reconnaissance division for four years, and she intends to complete her legal training before she turns thirty. Lowering her his voice suggestively, Peter questions Magdalene about her choice in service weapon, wondering how aloud wondering aloud how often she changes the barrel because the grooves have become too worn. Ignoring his coarse innuodos, she tells him she keeps a careful note of the number of shots fired. But you like the big rough ones, don't you? says Peter. No, not at all. I use the Glock seventeen, she replies because it can cope with a lot of defense teams' 9 millimeter ammunition. But don't you use the sketch? Yes, but I prefer the M39B, she says firmly, moving around him to enter the meeting room. He follows, and they both sit and greet Juna. And you get the Glock with gunpowder gas injectors next to the site, she continues. It reduces the recoil a hell of a lot, and you can get a next shot in much more quickly. What does your Muminotrol think? asks Peter, with a nod in Juna's direction. Juna smiles sweetly and fixes his icy, icy clear gray eyes on them. I think it doesn't make any difference. I think other elements decide the outcome, he says. So you don't need to be able to shoot, Peter grins. Juna is a good shot, says Magdalene. Good at everything, Peter sighs. Magdalene ignores Peter and turns to Juna instead. The biggest, biggest advantage with the compensated Glock is that the gunpowder gas can't be seen from the barrel when it's dark. Quite right, says Juna, wearing a pleasant expression. She opens her black leather case and begins leafing through her papers. Benny comes in, sits down, looks around at everyone, slams the palm of his hand down on the table, and smiles broadly when Magdalene flashes him flashes at him in irritation. I took the case out in Tumba, Juna starts. That's got nothing to do with us, says Peter. I think we could be dealing with a serial killer here, or at least just leave it for God's sakes, Benny interrupts, looking Juna in the eye and slapping the table again. It was somebody settling a score, Peter goes on. Loan debts gambling. A gambling addict, Benny says. Very well known at Slovala, the local sharks here into him for a lot of money, and he ended up paying for it, says Peter, bringing the matter to a close. In the silence that followed, Juna, thinks, Juna drinks some water and finishes the last of his sandwich. I've got a feeling about this case, he says quietly. Then you need to ask for a transfer, says Peter with a smile. This has nothing to do with the National CID. I think it has. If you want the case, you'll have to go in and join the local force in Tumba, says Peter. 
I intended to investigate these murders, says Juna calmly. That's for me to decide, replies Peter. Gindvig Sivasan comes in and sits down. His hair is slick black with gel. He has blue-gray rings under his eyes and a reddish stubble. And, as always, he is in creased black suit. Gingui, Benny says happily. Not only is Yengvi Savion in charge of the analytical section, but he's also one of the leading experts in organized crime in the country. Yengvi, what do you think about the business in Tamba? asks Peter. You've just been having a look at it, haven't you? Strictly a local matter, he says. A lone enforcer goes to the house to collect normally. The father would have been home, but he stepped into the referee. He stepped in to ref referee a soccer match at the last minute. The enforcer is presumably high, both speed and repital, I'd say. He's unbalanced, he's stressed, something sets him off, so he attacks the family with some kind of SWAT knife to try and find out where the father is. They tell him the truth, but he goes completely nuts anyways and kills them all before he goes off to the playing field. Peter sneers. He gulps some water, bletches into his hand, and turns to Duna. What have you got to say about that? If it wasn't completely wrong, it might be quite impressive, says Juna. What's wrong with it, says Yangvi aggressively. The murderer killed the father first, Juna says calmly. Then he went over to the house and killed the rest of the family. In which case, it's hardly likely to be a case of debt collection, says Magdalene Rounder. Runander. Well, we'll just have to see what the post-mortem shows, Yangvi matters. It'll show I'm right, says Juna. Idiot, Yingvi sighs, tucking two plugs of snuff under his top lip. Juna, I'm going I'm not giving you this case, says Peter. I realize that, he sighs and gets up from the table. Where do you think you're going? We've got a meeting, says Peter. I'm going to talk to Carlos. Not about this. Yes, about this, says Juna, leaving the room. Get back in here, shouts Peter, or I'll have to Juna doesn't hear what Peter will have to do. He simply closes the door calmly behind him and moves along the hall, saying hello to Anja, who peers over her computer screen with a quizzical expression. Aren't you in a meeting, she asks. I am, he says, continuing towards the elevator. Chapter 10 Tuesday, December 8th, morning. On the fifth floor is the National Police Board's meeting room and central office, and this is also where Carlos... Elason, the head of the National CID, is based. The office door is ajar, but as usual, it is more closed than open, as if to discourage casual visitors. Come in, come in, come in, says Carlos, an expression made up of equal parts anxiety and pleasure flicker across his face when Juno walks in. I'm just going to feed my babies, he says, tapping the edge of his aquarium. Smiling, he sprinkles fish foods into the water and watches the fish swim to the surface. There now, he whispers. He shows the smallest paradised fish, Nikita, which way to go, then turns back to Juna. The murder squashed uh, if you asked if you could take a look at the killing in on Dalinara. They can solve that one themselves, replies Juna. Anyway, I haven't got time. He sits down directly opposite Carlos. There is a pleasant aroma of leather and wood in the room. The sun shines playfully through the aquarium. 
casting a dancing beam of undulant, fracted light on the walls. I want the tumba case, he says, coming straight to the point. A troubled expression takes over Carlos's wrinkled, Carlos's wrinkled, amiable face for a moment. He passes a hand through his thinning hair. P Peter Naslund rang me just now, and he's right. This isn't a matter for the National CID, he says carefully. I think it is, insists Juno. Only if the debt collection is linked to some kind of winger organizational crime, Juno. This wasn't about collecting a debt. Oh, no. The murderer attacked the father first. Then he went to the house to kill the family. His plan from the outset was to murder the entire family. He's going to find the older daughter, and he's going to find the boy if he survives. Carlos glances briefly at his aquarium, as if he were afraid the fish might hear something unpleasant. I see, he says, and how do you know this? Because of the footprints in the blood at both scenes. What do you mean? Juno leans forward. There were footprints all over the place, of course, and I haven't measured anything, but I've got the impression that the footsteps in the locker room were more likely the ones in the house were more tired. Here we go, says Carlos wearily. This is where you start complicating everything. But I'm right, replies Juno. Carlos shakes his head. I don't think you are. Not this time. I am. Yes, I am. Carlos turns. Junalina is the most stubborn individual I've ever come across, he tells his fish. Why back down when I know I'm right? I can't go over Peter's head and give you the case on the s strength of a hunch, Carlos explains. Yes, you can. Everybody thinks this is about gambling debts. You too, asks Juna. I do, actually. The footprints were more lively in the locker room because the man was murdered first, insisted Juna. You never give up, do you, asks Carlos. Juna shrugs his shoulders and smiles. I'd better ring and speak to the path lab myself, motors Carlos, picking up the telephone. They'll tell you I'm right, says Juna. Juna Lena knows he is a stubborn person. He needs the stubbornness to carry on. He cannot give up. Cannot. Long before Juna's life changed to the core. Before it was shattered into pieces. He lost his father. Maybe that's when it all began. Juna's father, Yurjolina, was a patrolling policeman in the district of Marshta. One day, in 1979, he happened to be on the old Upslavagin, a little way north of the Lostenstrom Hospital, when Central Control got a call and sent him to Hamar Vivagen in Uplands Vaspi. A neighborhood had called the police and said that the Olsen kids were being beaten again. Sweden had just become the first country to introduce a ban on the corporal punishment of children, and the police had been instructed to take the new law seriously. Yurjo Lina drove to the apartment house and pulled up outside the door where he waited for his partner. After a few minutes, the partner called. He was in line at Mama's hot dog stand, and besides, he said he thought a man should have the right to show who was boss sometimes. Yurjo Lina never was one to talk much. He knew regulation, regulations dictated 
that there should always be two police officers present at an incident of this kind, but he said nothing, although he was aware that he had the right to expect support. He didn't want to push, didn't want to look like a coward, and he couldn't wait. So alone, Gear Joe Lena mounted the stairs to the third floor and rang the doorbell. A little girl with frightened eyes opened the door. He told her to stay on the landing, but she shook her head and ran into the apartment. Eugelina followed her and walked into the living room. The girl banged on the door, leading to the balcony. Eugel saw that there was a little boy out there wearing only a diaper. He looked about two years old. Eugel hurried across the room to let the child in, and that was, was why he noticed the drunken man just a little too late. He was sitting in complete silence on the sofa just in, inside the door, his face turned towards the balcony. Yurjo had used both hands to undo the catch and turn the handle. It was only when he heard the click of a shotgun that Yurjo froze. The shot sent a total of 36 small lead pellets straight into his spine and killed him almost instantly. 11-year-old Juna and his mother Rivita, uh, Ritva moved from the bright apartment in the center of Marsta to his aunt's three-room place in Fred Hall in Stockholm. After graduating from high school, he applied to the police training academy. He still thinks about his friends in his group quite often, strolling together across the vast lawns, the lull before they were sent out on placements, the early years as junior officers. Junalina had done his share of desk work. He has redirected traffic after road accidents and for the Stockholm Marathon, been embarrassed by football hooligans harassing his female colleagues with their deafening songs on the underground, found dead heroin addicts with rotting sores, helped ambulance crews with vomiting drunks, talked to prostitutes shaking with withdrawal symptoms to those with AIDS, to those who were afraid. He has met hundreds of men who have abused their partners and children, always following the same pattern, drunk but controlled and deliberate with the radio on full volume and the blinds closed. He has stopped spe speeding and drunk drivers, confiscated weapons, drugs, and homemade booze. Once while off from work with lumbargo and out walking to avoid stiffening up, he'd, been, he'd seen a skinhead grab a Muslim woman's breast outside the school of Clapstrop. His back aching, he'd chased the skinny head the skinhead along the water right through the park past Simonsund onto the Vastro bridge across the water and past Langholm into Sodermau finally catching up with him by the traffic lights at Hog uh, Gaston without any real intention of being a career he has moved up the ranks he could join the National Murder Squad, but he refuses. He likes complex tasks and never gives up, but Junalina has no interest whatsoever in any form of command. Now Juna sits listening to Carlos Elenson talk to Professor Niels, the Needle, Elen, Chief, Medical Officer at the Pathology Lab in Stockholm. No, I just didn't need to know which was the first crime scene, says Carlos. Then he listens for a while. I realize that. I do realize that. But in your judgment so far, what do you think? 
Juno leans back in his chair, running his fingers through his messy blonde hair. So far, he doesn't feel any tiredness from the long night in Tumba and at Carlo Karolinska Hospital. He watches as Carlos's face grows redder and redder. Juno can hear the needle drone faintly on the other end of the line. When his voice stops, Carlos simply nods and hangs up without saying goodbye. They, they, they have established the father was killed first, supplies Juno. Carlos nods. What did I tell you? Juno beams. Carlos looks down at his desk and clears his throat. Okay, you're leading the preliminary investigation, he says. The Tumba case is yours. First of all, I want to hear one thing, says Juno. Who is right? Who is right? You or me? You, yells Carlos. For God's sake, Juno, what is it with you? Yeah, you were right, as usual. Juno hides a smile behind his hand as he gets up. Suddenly he turns grave. Reconnaissance hasn't been able to track down Evelyn Yick. Ick. She could be anywhere. I don't know what we're going to do if we can't get permission to talk to the boy. Too much time will pass, and it'll be too late when we find her. You want to interrogate the wounded boy, Carlos asks. I have no choice. Have you spoken to the pro prosecutor? I have no intention of handing over the preliminary investigation until I have a suspect, says Juna. That's not what I meant, says Carlos. I just think it's a good idea to have the prosecutor on your side if you're going to talk to the boy who is badly injured. Juna is halfway at the door. Okay, that makes sense. You're a wise man. I'll give Jens a call, he says. Chapter 11, Tuesday, December 8th, morning. Eric Maria Bark arrives home from the Karolinska hospital as he quietly lets himself in. He thinks about the young victim lying there and the policeman who so eager to question him. Eric likes Detective Junalina, despite his attempts to get Eric to break his promise never to use hypnotism again. Maybe it's the detective's open and honest anxiety about the safety of the older sister that makes him so likable. Presumably, somebody is looking for her right now. Eric is very tired. The tablets had begun to take effect. His eyes were heavy and sore. Sleep is on, his, on the way. He opens the bedroom door and looks at Simone. The light from the hallway covers her like a scratched pane of glass. Three hours have passed since he left her here, and Simone has now taken over all the space in the bed. Resting on her stomach, she lies there heavily. The bed clothing are drawn by her feet, and her nightgown has worked its way up around her waist, and she has goosebumps over her arms and shoulder. Eric pulls the covers over her carefully. She murmurs something and curls up. He sits down and strokes her ankle as she moves slightly. I'm going for a shower, he says, but he leans back against the headboard, overwhelmed by fatigue. What was the name of the police officer, she asks, slurring her words. Before he has time to answer, he finds himself in the park in Ob Observator London in his digging in the sand in the playground and finds a yellow stone as round as an egg, as big as a pumpkin. He scrapes at it with his hands and sees the outline of a relief on the side, a jagged row of teeth. When he turns the heavy stone over, he sees that it is the skull of a dinosaur. Suddenly, Simone is screaming, Fuck you! 
He gives a start and realizes that he had suddenly fallen asleep and began to dream. The strong pills have sent him to sleep in the middle of the conversation. He tries to smile and meets Simone's chilly gaze. Sixon, what is it? Has it started again? She asked. What? 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 She repeats crossly. Who's Daniela? Daniela? You promised. You made a promise, Eric. She said, I trusted you. I was actually stupid enough to trust. What are you talking about? Daniela Richards is a colleague at Car Carolyn Scup. She's just got what she's got to do with anything. Don't lie to me. This is actually getting ridiculous, he says, and despite her clear anger, he feels the smile spread involuntarily across his face. He is so tired. Do you think this is funny? she asked. I've sometimes thought I even believed I could forget what happened. Eric nods off for a few seconds, but he can still hear what she's saying. It might be best if we separate, whispers Simone. He snaps awake at this. Nothing has happened between me and Daniela. That doesn't really matter, she says warily. Doesn't it? Doesn't it matter? You want to separate because of something I did ten years ago? Something? I was drunk, Simone. Drunk, and I don't want to listen. I know all about it. I... Fuck it. I don't want to do this. I'm not a jealous person, but I am loyal, and I expect loyalty in return. I've never let you down since, and I never... Prove it to me. I need proof. You just have to trust me, he says. Yes, she says with a sigh, and collecting a pillow and duvet, she shuffles out of the bedroom and down the hallway. He is breathing heavily. He ought to follow her, not just give up. He ought to try and calm her down or persuade her to come back to bed. But right now, he right now, sleep exerts the stronger influence. He can no longer resist it. He sinks down into the bed, feeling the dopamine flood his system, and the tension flow out of his body as relaxation spreads pleasurably across his face, his neck and shoulders, down into his toes and the tips of his fingers. A heavy, chemical sleep enfolds his consciousness like a flowery cloud. Oh my god, guys, I am loving this book so much. You know, it hasn't really given us much information yet. It's already caught my attention. I hope it's caught y'all's too. Again, I'm going to ask, leave a voice message, you know, let me know what you think of the book so far. I'll probably ask that after every reading. You never know. I might quit asking after a while, but hey, you never know. But guys, I'm having so much fun with this book. And we've only just begun. I haven't been able to say that about many books. But this one, I can say that about. It is awesome, guys. Well, sorry I gotta cut the end of the talk thing short. So let's find out what app and what quote we are gonna be using today from my criminal again away. I, for some reason, really love that app. <laughs> and let's see. We are going to be doing section 12. I don't have my uh, section thing on me, so... I actually, actually know. I know exactly what that is. Um, that is random quotes, I do believe. No, that's actually season 12. So let's see what's in season 12. Let's see, for today, our quote is, well, hang on, it's not letting me get there. Okay, so today, our quote is, 
What greater thing is there for human souls than to feel that they are joined for life, to be with each other in silent, unspeakable memories? This was said by George Eliot, who I am about to compliment as a wise man, uh, though I don't really quite understand what that quote means. If any of y'all have any idea what any of these quotes mean, uh, send in a voice message and let me know, but I'm a... Get out of here, guys. So I will see you next time. Chowski.